Well, let's hope that uh, you're on fire. I can tell you what our group of people we've got today. We've got the big three today on Rational Radio. We're kicking off with Paul O'Sullivan, who went along to court this morning. He'll tell us more about that in a moment. It's to do with a corruption issue, 60 million rand at Eskom. Then we'll talk to David Shapiro. He'll be bringing us up to date on the markets, including an opportunity that went south, a company called Metro Bank that is really under pressure. We'll talk to him at about quarter past. And then we have a special, a half-hour discussion with Jared Watson, who gave us the information which is dynamite. It's all over. In fact, Biz News had its biggest day ever yesterday as a consequence of the publication of that information, the what we're calling the Basasa files. It's documentary evidence which completely changes so much of the narrative that's been written about Basasa. But we'll get on to that in a moment. First up, as promised, Paul O'Sullivan. Paul, lovely talking with you. We've been following this story uh, that should have gone to court this morning. Did you actually go along to Germiston? Yes, so I went to court, Alec, and um, Mr. Trindardi uh, rocked up there with uh, a, a legal team, including the um, well-known criminal lawyer Lawrence Otis um, and two other lawyers um, and after the kicking our heels for about an hour we went into court and they asked for postponement until the 22nd of November so the matter has been delayed until then Alright, so let's just go back a little what exactly were you doing in court today because you were the guy being accused of, uh, of being in the wrong Okay, so I wrote to Trindadi on the 4th of March this year, and I told him that although our investigations were not completed, uh, I was satisfied that a vast amount of money had been stolen from a company called Tubular Construction Project, which was a special purpose company set up for tendering at ESCOM. And uh, I didn't say as much in my email, but we found that there were massive payments being made to ESCOM employees as well. And what's Trindardi's uh, relationship with this company, Tubular? uh, He owns 65% of the company. He's got a group holding company, and he owns his shares through that, and he owns the group holding company. So every time he does a project, he sets up a new company. He he, he solicits the involvement of black economic empowerment um, shareholders, and um, our client is one of those black economic empowerment shareholders who's effectively been swindled out of his slice of the action because they've stolen all the money from the company. And the company is, for all intents and purposes, insolvent, having completed a four billion rand project. And the, how did they get the project in the first place? Well, as, as I've said, um, we found that the uh, – and, of course, our client had no knowledge – um, he, he repeatedly asked for the bank statements and they refused to give it to him. He repeatedly asked for all sorts of information. They refused to give it to him. But it's now apparent that they got the project by paying bribes to senior ESCOM employees. Okay, so how come you land up being accused in court? Okay, so I wrote to this guy and I told him if he didn't repay the money he'd stolen, I'd open a criminal case against him. He ignored the email. So a couple of weeks later, I sent an email to his attorney. I found out who his attorney was, and I sent him an email. I said, look, you know, we're not going to wait forever. He needs to repay the money he's stolen, and, um, you know, it needs to be done promptly, or else we're going to open a criminal docket. Uh, They ignored that. On the 21st of May, 
I got word that they were bad-mouthing me. So I went ahead anyway and opened the criminal docket on the 26th of June. And that criminal docket is published on our website. Um, so we opened the docket on the 26th of June. On the 2nd of July, uh, Biz News, that's your channel, you did an interview with me and you ran the story. And three days later, he trots off to the Germiston courts and attempted to bring an ex parte application to have me gagged on a, uh, what, what's known as an anti-harassment order. Meanwhile, I've only sent him two emails. So, um, you know, he's just playing tricks and I've decided not to roll over and I've, I've, I've put him up to it and I said, come on, let's fight it out in court and bring your lawyers along. And by the way, uh, have you told your lawyers that you're paying them with the proceeds of crime? Hmm. And so that was the court hearing today, which has been postponed. Sounds rather strange. Yeah, it's been postponed because they, they, they need more time, they say. Um, and then they said they want to see all my evidence. Uh, um, we're taking legal advice as to whether or not we give them the evidence. We've opened a, a, a criminal docket. The evidence we have runs into thousands and thousands of pages. So we've handed all of that to the SIU and to the DPCI. And we are going to consult with the SIU and the DPCI and see whether or not they're comfortable with us handing them all the evidence uh, before the criminal investigation has been completed. But we are satisfied, and we put it in our papers, we are satisfied. I mean, one of the payments to Khlakudi, uh, the ESCOM employee, is from an amount of half a million rand for roofing sheets at 8,500 rand each. And I can go out and buy the same roofing sheets from Build It for 485 rand. So um, the whole thing is completely fraudulent. And anyway, why would they be buying roofing sheets from an ESCOM employee? So what have ESCOM done about this? Say again? What have ESCOM done about this? Have they fired Well, we've been in touch. What ESCOM have done, they've done what is appropriate. They've referred the matter to the SIU. Um, we've been communicating with the SIU, and the SIU are now at the point of asking the National Prosecuting Authority um, they've completed their investigations and they're asking the MPA to prosecute them. But as you know, the National Prosecuting Authority is still captured. It might have a new leader, but certain elements of the NPA are completely captured. The organization itself has been disemboweled of good prosecutors. Um, and the, 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 the remainder that are left, they just overworked and underpaid. Well, why do you do this kind of thing? You know, I was having a look in preparation for this interview at some of the stories that we ran in the past couple of years. And you've taken on the NPA, as you've now explained. Certainly when they were captured, you were even more aggressive. Well, uh, at least they got a new head now. But you, Sean Abrams, you took on McKinsey, which has probably got one of the, uh, the, the most ammunition of any organization in the world to hit back with. Hogan Lovells, the Sunday Times, which has got, well, uh, it buys its barrel by the ink. Sorry, it's ink by the barrel. Uh, Batlani, Celebi, who you put into jail. What is it that, that makes you do these things? Well, we've recognized Forensics for Justice, as you know, as a charity. And we've recognized that the um, criminal justice system in South Africa was captured a good few years ago. And it's still captured um, by the underworld. And therefore, we've decided to continue and expose these Cases and we publish it all on our website. Um, and you know, some of the cases we have been able to get 
successful arrests or prosecutions started at least. Um, and a lot of, I mean, the Sunday Times you mentioned, I gave them seven days notice to retract all three stories. And seven days later, they retracted all three stories. So I think, um, you know, our aim is to keep exposing the rot and keep holding people accountable. Yeah, well, that's that's a, a good result in that case. But in this Trinidadi case, it looks like you're going to be going to court a lot. That's expensive in terms of time, let alone legal fees. Yes, well, up till now, I've been defending myself. Um, and <laughs> I can tell you I saw a very white-faced um, um, accuser in court this morning and looking very worried indeed because he knows that I want to get him into court so that I can then put questions to him while he's under oath. And he, he either will incriminate himself or he's going to have to tell the court he's exercising his constitutional right to remain silent. And the court can then draw their own conclusions from that. Let's just say that you had the opportunity to cross-question this uh, Trinidad, who you've, you have documentary evidence is corrupt and has been corrupted people, corrupting people at Eskom. If that were to happen... Would that be enough for the police to arrest him on the spot? Or how does the criminal justice system work? Well, as I've said to you, you know, in a, in a real world, a normal world, um, he should have been arrested already. The evidence is overwhelmingly against him. Um, but as you know, the criminal justice system in South Africa is captured. And you've got more chance of seeing instant justice if you steal a loaf of bread from uh, pick and pay um, there will be instant justice if you're caught on that. But if you steal billions of rand from ESCOM, um, for some reason, the paralysis in the criminal justice system results in these people getting away with it. So where are we in the whole fight against uh, getting rid of the corrupt element in South Africa? Well, we, know, we know the president has made it his top priority. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we've been, obviously, we've been in constant communication with the president's office and with the new um, head of the NPA. I, I, I wrote to Shamila and I said, Shamila, um, you're in charge of the NPA, but you're not in control of the NPA and you won't be until you get rid of these people. And I gave her a list of names of people that needed to be uh, shipped out. What did she do? Well, you know, it's work in progress. You know, we have this Labor Relations Act. Um, the criminal justice system says that you're innocent until you're found guilty. Unless you're Paul O'Sullivan getting on a plane and having used your Irish passport, um, in which case you get swift justice and you get dragged off the plane and detained and tortured for four days. But where are we, Paul, from, from your assessment of the... The changes. When Cyril Ramaphosa was still Deputy President in Davos 2017, he said that these were the things that were going to change. Uh, sorry, it was Davos 2018. It was after the December uh, elective conference. These were the things that, that were the priorities. The number one priority was corruption. How much progress has he made? Well, I think we're getting there slowly but surely, Alec. You know, um, one can liken our criminal justice system to a battleship and we were heading off at full steam ahead in the wrong direction. Um, we're certainly no longer going in that direction, but it takes, uh, I think they say it takes 16 kilometers for a battleship to do a 180 degree turn. And we're in the process of that 180 degree turn. And I would expect probably by 
either later this year or middle of next year, um, the system will be working a little bit more efficiently and we're going to be seeing people dragged before the courts with, with a bit of justice being meted out. I get this question often, so I'm sure you get it three times more. Why is it taking so long to put people behind bars? Yeah, as I said to you, you know, it's, it's a mixture of paralysis, it's a mixture of hidden agenda, and it's a mixture of the, um, the good people having taken a back seat because they've been either fired or put out. I mean, look at people like Shadrach Sabir and Anwar Dramat, um, Sean Abrahams, uh, and, and uh, Diba and Mawebi while they were running the NPA. They managed to persuade a lot of good prosecutors to leave. Look at Harry Nell. He's ended up going to work in private practice for, for, for AFE Forum. If he was still running um, at the NPA, he'd be a perfect person to take on some of these cases. So why aren't they re-employed? Well, you know, sometimes people don't want to go back over. Look how they chased Linus Breitenbach out of the NPA, you know, and she's gone into political party now. I, some, sometimes it's hard to go back over these bridges, especially if the bridges have been burnt. Paul O'Sullivan, Forensics for Justice, continuing in the work that it is doing to make South Africa a better place. In just a moment, we'll be talking with David um, Shapiro, the one and only. Hello. Hi, Dave. You're right there. Okay. I'm going to just turn the music down and away we go. Well, it's a warm welcome to David Shapiro, who's going to be talking to us next time from New York. Dave, but you, you're still in South Africa at the moment. I am. Uh, <laughs> I am. Until tomorrow. <laughs> oh, tomorrow. On, on one of your regular journeys to go and find out what's happening in Trumpland. My goodness. I see, I oh. see now that now Nancy Pelosi is, uh, is issuing uh, or, or starting proceedings to mm. have Trump mm. impeached. It's Peach, going to be yeah. exciting times when you're in New York. It is, it is exciting because, uh, look, I doubt whether it's going to get through. Remember Clinton was impeached by uh, the House, but uh, was led off by the Senate. And I think with the Republicans controlling the Senate, it's unlikely to go further than that. But I think, you know, Alec, uh, one's got to look at Trump. And uh, I, I suppose we don't want to get into the conversation now. But he has a way of branding people. You know, he's now branding Biden as uh, corrupt and at a time where Biden is uh, fighting for the uh, presidency or fighting for the nomination of the Democrats, you start to get this message out in the same way as he did it with Hillary as, uh, you know, lock her up, lock her up. And now you're starting to get the headlines coming through that Biden's corrupt and there's no evidence around this. So, you know, it becomes very, very dirty and, uh, you know, very, very difficult to understand where this is and whether this is really what you want. You know, we all sit, hey, we all watch it from the side and say, is this the president of the United States? You know, is politics that dirty? 
I suppose it is, but uh, um, very, very difficult to 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 know what kind of stand you know uh, the Republicans should make. Uh, are they really that interested in their jobs or holding their jobs that they've got no moral values anymore to stand up for what uh, you know what what they think should be right the right way? I had a really a mm. really good uh, chat with uh, Bernie Wolfsdorf, who's uh, South African. Oh, yeah. He's mm-hmm. the he's the leading immigration lawyer. In the United States, and he he kind of kidded me by saying, you know, in the last, I, I called him one of, and he said, well, in the last seven of ten years, uh, our, I have been voted the leading immigration lawyer. So good good luck for South Africa. But the point he was making is that Trump is a businessman, so he's he's yeah. applying business principles uh. to much uh, to to much of what's going yeah. on there. He was talking particularly about the EB5 visa, which is an entrepreneur's visa where you put money in and then you can get <coughs> into America <coughs> if you invest enough, and that's going to be trebled, uh, the value there. But yeah. is it, uh, with hindsight now, we saw in South Africa how, how what an abject failure Maya Khan, who was our top businessman at the time, was when he tried to run the police service. Now we're seeing uh, the difficulties that Donald Trump is having as a businessman trying to run a political office in the United States. Surely business should stick on one side and and let the politicians do their thing. That's what we thought, and that's what we wish for, because he's trying to impose uh, principles on something that uh, doesn't require principles. I think that is much much dirtier. For example, the whole impeachment process is is around him bribing or coercing or pushing, I think pushing is a better word, the Ukrainian president to investigate uh, the son of someone who's going to oppose him for the presidency. Now, that's business-type tactics. That's mm. not political-type tactics. You know, this is – we're not at war with anybody, and uh, uh, or they're certainly not at war with the Ukrainians, and he's not at war with his opponents, but he is applying those kind of principles. And to be honest – he hasn't signed a big deal. I mean, besides the tax uh, reductions, we haven't seen him do anything with uh, with North Korea. He hasn't done a deal with China. He hasn't done any big deals as well. So, um, I, I, to be honest, Alec, I'm getting bored with this whole thing. I just wonder, you want a president who actually sets decent principles that you can teach your kids to follow, your grandchildren and so on, um, not the kind of principles that he stands for. This. There are so many Trump supporters as well as detractors, you know, even within my family. <laughs> when I talk to the Australian branch, you know, they think he's great, you know, and you talk to the South African branch, it's a completely opposite side, or even the American branch of my family. So, <laughs> Well, let's, anyway. let's go to the UK branch and yeah. have a yeah. look at Metrobank. Now, let me tell you the story mm. of Metrobank. Uh, yeah. When Harry Faree from Capitec, was on one of his visits through London at the time that I was there. Um, we we hitched up and we had a good chat. And towards the end, I said, when are you guys going to invest in the UK? And he said, probably never, because you have a bank here called Metro Bank. And I started yes. investigating, and it was a fantastic uh. operation. In fact, we put our business, our, our business uses uh. business with Metro Bank. They're that good. They're low cost. Their, their branches uh. are open longer. They're very efficient. It's uh. just... It's just in a different league to the other banks in the UK. And, however, it, and it was started by an American called uh, Vernon Hill. Anyway, what's happened to Metro Bank is that the city has fought back. From Fortunately, we sold it out of our portfolios uh, at £30 a share, 
it's now below two pounds a share today. Mm. And what the, what the devil is going yeah. on there? It's almost like here you have, for the first time mm. in 150 years, yeah. a challenger to the system, mm. and has the system mm. fought back. They haven't. One of the problems in building a bank is you need critical mass. In other words, you need a very wide spread of deposit holders and also low knees, people to whom you lend money. And that's the big issue. Why do I say that, Alec? You know, when you, when you think of a bank, and Capitec went through this similar issue. You know, I mean, they've been very good in handling their growth. But what happens is that according to bank rules, and please do not, these are not the exact numbers, but it gives you an idea. When you put a 100 rand or a 100 pounds deposit into a bank, that bank can lend it out at a multiple say sometimes up to eight times or four times. Okay, so think of the maths. You put in a hundred um, pounds deposit, the bank can lend it out four times. In other words, can lend out 400, but sometimes even 800. Now, what happens if you withdraw that? What happens if you withdraw that hundred pounds? It means that you have to now call in those loans. That's the kind of balance. Also, you need capital to, you need certain capital requirements against the loans that you make and the deposits. So that's where these smaller banks fall foul, you know, or, or come under a lot of pressure is that, that as soon as there's a run on the bank or something, you know, large withdrawals and they start to lose the deposit base, so they have to bring in the loans. And of course, with loans, they're always, because it's such an exciting new bank, sometimes the, the level of, uh, Security is not as great as a bank that has been there for a long time. If you go back to the crisis in 2008 and 2009, that was the big issue with banks. Worries about a run on the banks. What does a run on the banks mean? Deposit holders take out their money. It drags down. It means that you have to call in the loans. And people are not in a position to repay the loans through through the contract. So that's where Metro Bank, if you analyze where it went wrong, it was against that kind of backdrop. Now, uh, the share mm. price was three bucks mm. last week. Yes. It's now mm. one eighty. One pound eighty. Mm. It was three pounds yes. three pounds a week ago. It's now one pound eighty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is Again, a worries. Big drop. So so clearly. It's worries about system. insolvency. Mm. Yeah. It's worries about whether they can uh, actually survive, you know, survive any kind of run. And the problem is when problems at a bank start to mount, uh, the last, it, you know, even if it's a rumor, what do you do? You run and say, I don't want to be caught and you withdraw your money. And there's limited guarantees that government or the banking institutes or whoever monitors can actually provide you against any kind of run. So it happened in Greece. It's happened all over many, many times in our history. But I think that's a backdrop to new banks. It's very difficult to build the critical mass that the Barclays and the Lloyds and all these other places that have been there for a long time can build. And, what, and it, it hmm. means in our case as well, you know, with our net banks and standards and that, they've been there for a 100 years plus. So what about Capitech now mm. going in and making a bid for this, this company? They like it. They love the operations of the business. They've got the capital. I mean, Capitech is, what, 100 billion rand South African yeah, companies? Yeah. So that's, that's plenty They've to turn by a 300 the, million yeah. pound bank in, in the UK. Mm. I, I, I suppose their um, experience, and uh, they're very experienced, solid people. 
but they must know what they're getting into. And I think once you create confidence that you've got capital and, you know, you're providing a product that's not going to be, you know, that's, that's uh, uh, going to be sustainable. In other words, people, and we're seeing it with Capitech at the moment, they, they gaining more and more deposits as their name in the market increases. And that's the source of their strength is not on the loan side, it's on the deposit side. Mm. That's, you know, that is where, that's where this, the, the strength of, of Capitec comes is that they now starting to attract a lot of people and put money in. They don't have to go into the market and borrow money. You know, in other words, uh, finance their loans. They, they can do it from their own deposits. So I think that's the answer. If they can do that and, and put a good message out, I think they can get back, you know, with, with some smart service. Well, they, they oh. and, and I, I under I underestimated. They actually have a market cap. I've just checked now of one hundred and forty-six billion. Call it, call it one hundred and fifty mm. billion rand, which is eight billion pounds. The the market cap yeah. at the moment of Metro is three hundred million, so they could comfortably swallow it. Uh, mm. First Rand recently bought Aldermore in the UK for a yeah. billion pounds, so three mm. times. And Aldermore is not mm. a it's, it's not a touch no. on on Metro. On the Metro, surely mm. it's a screaming opportunity. I, I, for them. Look, <laughs> I think that you've got to discuss with Capitec. You know, they. Uh, I'm just looking because you know that Capitec today is bigger than APSA. Uh, it's certainly bigger than NetBank, and certainly a lot bigger than uh, almost double the size of. Of, no, the size of invest, yeah, double the size of investing. More valuable. So, mm, more yeah. valuable. Sorry, mm. sorry, not in terms of that. And the value, that's come through confidence in what they do and the profits that they've provided. So I think that, that, uh, if you provide the right product, you don't try and stretch it too much and you focus on very narrow areas, yes, they could do it. Now, mm. Eldermore's doing okay, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I think Eldermore was actually contributing quite well it's to okay, uh, the Dad, first round. But yeah. it's a billion. Mm. I, I was just, and, mm. and it's, mm. uh, you, you, yes, it is doing fine. But you, you think that first round could afford to buy a bank for a billion pounds. Capitec mm. is not far behind first round in the, uh, in, in the market value yeah. tax. It should be able to comfortably swallow a bank of 300 million pounds and, mm. and it's got a similar process. Uh, they think mm. they can learn a lot from Metro Bank. Anyway, mm. it's, it's just one of those what ifs. Mm. Uh, another what if is uh, the perennial one is Sassel. Any updates there? I, the share price is coming back. Uh, we've had no updates. We're waiting now. Uh, the results have got to come out, uh, I think, pretty shortly. Mm. And uh, from then on, we'll be able to decide uh, on, on management. The shares down quite significantly, but I think that's more to do with the oil price. They're down 4.6%. But Alec, it's, it's still a concern, and uh, I still think that management has got a lot to address. Look, you, you know what we've got to do and we don't do anymore is attend the, uh, the AGMs. You know, and I think this one's going to be delayed for some time now because the results are coming out and that. But I think it's one thing that the Americans uh, don't do. They don't let management off. We saw with WeWorks now. You know, we, what a WeWorks, story, Dan. I know, I know, I know. But the chap, he's kicked out. He's you know, gone, he's gone. Mm. Boom, finished, founder. Exactly right. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. We saw it with Uber as well. Yeah. Boom. Travis, Travis Kavelnik yeah. mm. didn't uh, didn't make the, the RPO, and this no. uh, this no. guy, what's his name, um, Adam New- Newman. Newman, he's not going to make the RPO either. But but we knew. I mean, you know how blind are investors? 
he cashed in $700 million <laughs> of his stake like a month before they were supposed to go public. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> well, of course. I mean, that, that, that was a sure sign. But I think the, the other – I'm not – I don't like those kind of companies. I don't like – when I say I don't like them, I love what they stand for. I love the innovation. I love the entrepreneurship. But I'm like to – you know, there's an old saying that the first uh, pioneers got scalped. And the money, you know, when everybody moved west, it was the people who came in the fourth and fifth waves that actually made the money. And uh, it's the same thing uh, even here in South Africa with the gold miners. Those who came later and picked up the pieces were the ones who made the money. And I like to watch the businesses to see how they operate, wait for them to start making a bit of cash and then uh, and then invest. But I love the stories. But uh, you know, this is the turmoil you get with innovative businesses. Yeah, capitalism. And the innovators mm. are, as you say, the ones who get the arrows, the pioneers. But David, yes. uh, Investec, we touched on that a bit earlier. Mm. They're very good mm. at coming to the party as the second or the third uh, purchaser yeah. of, for instance, developments, property developments and so on. But they are really, that stock is under huge pressure at the yeah. moment. Yeah, yeah. They back down another 6%. And I think those results were far worse than the market was expecting. When I say results, this was uh, a five-month review, you know, pre-closing uh, review. But what it does highlight is the strain that they're taking in the UK and the strain that they're taking here. I think the other issue is that, you know, Hendrik, who's uh, asset management side of Hendrik going to split yeah. off, yeah. Hendrik de Toy are splitting off. And that's also going to weaken the base of, of Investec. Um, so here's a stock that, uh, with all the fuss that we've made about Investec, and I've always been, you know, I, I use their card, I use their services, and that if you didn't, you've, you've done better using their services than actually investing in them because over 10 years or five or six or seven years, they've hardly done anything. I'm just trying to quickly get a chart. We're down 6% today. It's down, yeah. it's down more yeah. than 10% mm. uh, in the last three, well, since September the mm. 20th, so it's a bit longer than three trading days. Uh, it, it really is a bit like WeWork, mm. which is a fantastic. I mean, I was a WeWork fan. I, I, I yeah, used their offices. Yeah. Fantastic mm. product, but uh, you wouldn't want to buy their shares. Well, no. not now, not in the pre-listing. We're, we're down five years. You know, we're down, and I don't know even before then. I don't know how far it is. So, if you would have bought uh, Investec shares five years ago, you're back where you started. Mm. Uh, you haven't made any money out of it, and yet look at all the effort that's gone into running the bank. See, so David, it, it, David mm. this is why you should be investing in business premium because there I go onto the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> I can tell you the last time yeah. I invested was at this share price was in 2013. Okay, there you are. 2013. Six years. So six, six years. Six years. Six yeah. years. And work out the cost of money in that time. Six you know, the other years. opportunities that existed for you to have bought. But isn't the uh, question on that one, buy them now because they are at six year ago prices? No, no. The trend is heading down, and there's structurally the issues there that they have to face. So we have to work out where Brexit's going. I mean, we've we've had a weekend, or when I say a, a four-day weekend, you know, if it wasn't uh, um, Trump talking at the UN, if it wasn't Johnson being absolutely smashed by the the high courts in the in the US, I mean, so UK. we've we've had a lot to di- the UK. Sorry, we've had a lot to digest, and now we've got the uh, impeachment stories and that. So, I think a lot of these are playing, you know, playing on not only politics but playing on the global economy. But Alec, I think the point. Um, you know, you, you've got to 
you've got to work out whether they can turn around from here, whether there is a strategy that that will get them better. And I think against that, you've got to have the two environments in which they operate, which is the UK and South Africa, uh, turn upwards. And there's no sense of that at the moment. It's still very, very bleak. Well, David, next week we'll be talking in New York. David Shapiro, who is our man on the market, South Africa's favorite uh, investment commentator. And we'll be talking in just a moment to perhaps one of the most controversial commentators right now, certainly as far as the business community is concerned, uh, a story that we published on the public holiday or on the eve of the public holiday about Basasa based on documentation that Gavin Watson, the late Gavin Watson, was going to give to the authorities at the SARS Commission a day before, sorry, a day after he passed away, a day after his body was found in a car crash. I had it, uh, well, we've got um, this interview coming up in a moment with Jared Watson, who put all the documentation together, and he joins the dots for us. Don't go anywhere. Now with Jared Watson, the nephew of uh, Gavin Watson, founder and uh, the recently deceased chief executive of Bosasa. Well, I, I can just tell you that, uh, Jared, your documentation that you put together, what we've called the Basasa Files, which is on Business, has been, has just gone viral. It's, it's, it was our biggest day ever on the website yesterday, and we've been going for six years, and we've had big stories in between. So there's a lot of interest. Um, let's just go back a little bit, though. Why did you put this all together? Um, uh, Alec, this file was particularly put uh, together um, at, at I'd say first, uh, we were exploring the possibility of um, submitting an affidavit uh, to the Zonda Commission. And at a later stage, it became necessary because of a tax inquiry that was established um, for Busasa and related entities. Um, they asked for certain information to be put together, um, and, and that's why the file was prepared. It was prepared as a submission to SARS. Just explain that. Uh, what is the tax inquiry about? So, um, in my view, um, the tax inquiry was effectively established as a result of allegations that were raised by Agritzi and his team at, um, at the Zonda Commission. And on the strength of those accusations, um, a inquiry was put together um, to investigate uh, the truthfulness of the allegations and to establish um, what, what is true, what isn't. Uh, or at least their version of it, and and to investigate the tax consequences thereof. So that's interesting. The the authorities are going through a process of of checking out what Agrizi said. From your perspective, and and certainly from what we've seen, it doesn't appear to have been similarly treated in the media. Is that changing now, though? I mean, well, since uh, your article, I mean, there's been a lot of interest. People starting to question the truthfulness of a gritsy, you know, um, can we trust what's been said here? But I mean, 
obviously the narrative in general has been um, one of the state capture entity. Um, so, yes, it does seem like I wouldn't say things are turning, but, I mean, we're being asked questions. People actually want to hear our position for the first time. Um, so that is, is, is our value, I guess. Did nobody contact you in the past? In the past, um, when uh, was it August last year, when uh, Gritty sent a letter to the press, um, our immediate um, inclination was to contact the press and to get um, a Bosasa version of their uh, story out there. But everything we tried just fell on deaf ears. No one wanted to hear the story. It wasn't the story that the public wanted to hear. No one wants to hear about um, a mere situation of corporate espionage. They want to hear the story of state capture, and it was what was relevant, and it was what was um, was the juicy story before elections in May of this year. So the run-up um, to that uh, to the elections, this is the story everyone wanted to hear. You know, you wanted to believe that there was some greater uh, story at hand here of state capture and whatnot, but. No one wanted to hear the story of Basasa, what they wanted to say, to say, look, yeah, effectively what we were dealing with um, was just an, uh, an ex-employee who wanted to take over the business. And if he wasn't allowed to take over the business, then to destroy it so that he could take their contracts. And it was nothing more than that. Um, but as I said, no one wanted to hear that story. There are quite a few people who come out really badly in the mm. documentary evidence that you've put there, including Adrian Basson from News24. Did you approach him at any point in time and, and uh, try and give your side? Actually, um, I did speak with Adrian quite recently. Uh, time all blends into one at the moment, but it was around a week or two ago, and we did speak. I did tell him um, that we are aware of certain th- accusations that have been made about him. I cannot talk about about his... Um, relationship with the Gritzy. Uh, I've never been in a room with the two of them. All I can talk about is what evidence we have and what the Gritzy himself has purported and what the Gritzy's um, teammate um, uh, Andres Fantonde has said about um, uh, Adrian Besson as well. So there are a number of other parties that have confirmed and said that he had, Angelo had a very good relationship with uh, with um, Adran and that their relationship goes back some time and that's documented in the files that you've uploaded that's documented in a transcript of a recording where Angelo says that himself it's documented in a transcript of a recording where Andres Fontonda says that it's documented in an email on the 7th of March 2018 where Angelo specifically says that to um, the auditors of Bosasa and I only had that email because Angelo gave me that email himself on about the 20. 5th of August last year. Um, and then we have an, in the file, there's an email from April 2016 of a private communication on, on Agritzi's personal email address between him and Adrian Basson. Now, uh, can I talk of any, um, any specific instance where I have been involved with a discussion of the two of them? I cannot. Um, Adrian must, must defend himself and say what his perspective is on that whole relationship i'm all i can do is pass on what is what is in my hands which is the transcripts of where they were purporting to be very close friends with adrian basson uh, emails where where, where gritzy was purporting that and emails between himself and adrian basson so so adrian must explain himself i can't say anything beyond that i can just provide the evidence that's at my disposal what about the Democratic Alliance? Uh, in the 
Basasa files that are on yeah. his news, uh, there's, there's quite a lot of linkages between Agritzi and his son and the official opposition. Yeah, so what, what happened was when I met Angelo last year, August, and I asked him and I said, look here, what is, he had sent a, what I call a letter to the press on the 21st of August. Um, and, and it was incredibly confusing that he was raising accusations that he had never raised before. And I said, what, what precipitated this letter of his to the press? And he said, amongst other things, um, that, um, that if we do this, we will be darlings in the old South Africa. And those are the verbatim words that he said to me. And when he said that, he then handed me his phone and he showed me a video of Glennis Breitenbach at his house, which was quite concerning to understand this relationship. And then he said he had become, over the last number of years, he'd become very close friends with high-ranking members of the Democratic Alliance and that, and that he'll be held as a hero um, if he brings down um, a Busasa. Um, so that was the context uh, under which I was exposed to this from uh, from Magritte himself, and because of that, I thought, well, let's let me do an investigation and see if there's more to be understood here. And on further inspection, um, that's where I came across a history of his son um, forming a company with employees of the DA, um, then his son requesting specifically for, or he, or rather, a- Angelo requesting. Uh, of Vincent Smith to place his son within the ANC around the same time, which just seemed incredibly troubling. Um, why would some uh, kid form a company um, with the Democratic Alliance employees? It's not just it's not just a matter of where someone it's like, oh, you vote for the ANC, I vote for EFF, he votes for the DA. This was forming uh, directorships with employees of that organisation who are to this day still employed by that organisation. Um, and then him then going, Giancarlo Gritti, Angelo's son, then going and asking to be placed within the ANC, then sitting um, for, what is it, four years, and four years later saying, just before the general elections in May of this year, saying, oh, I, I left the ANC because I became privy to high-level corruption within the ANC. It all just seemed like a game plan that was established. Um, and that's what I was hoping that the documentation that I um, uncovered would reveal an element of. So we know of these things from both sides, um, that there's something far greater than just that lying here. So where is the, apart from being on Viz News right now, the documentation was put together, as you say, initially for the SARS inquiry. Was it ever submitted? It actually hasn't been submitted yet. Um, obviously, Gavin passed away the day before he was to submit it. Um, so um, we're still trying to understand what channels to go through for the file to make its way to SARS. As I said to you as well, um, what what you have uploaded isn't the complete file. It's what I'd call the um, the chronology elements of the file, which explains Agritzi's timeline um, of involvement with Bosasa. Now, it's a significant portion of the file, but there are other more specific um, uh, tax issues that are also uh, dealt with in the file um, that – that isn't, I would say, the part of the chronology of it. So it's not the complete file that was to be submitted to SARS, but it is a large portion of it. Where did you get this information from? Well, I've just been doing an investigation for the better part of this year. Um, and, you know, I would I would speak to people within the organization, say, look, yeah, um, these are things that we're looking for, going through company files, doing my own, um, you know, research on the Internet, um, using, you know, whatever – 
capabilities I have just to try and accumulate documentation. And then a significant portion of it, believe it or not, was actually handed to me by Angelo Gritzi last year, August. So certain emails and documents, when I saw him last year, August, um, to understand why he had written this email um, that he had sent to the press that was then published by Adrian Busson, um, uh, he was he just started shoveling documentation to me and I just kept the documentation. I never thought anything would, I never realized, I never read through it at the time and never thought anything would come of it, but that actually stoked the fire to understand, oh, hang on a sec, something else is happening here. Um, so, so that was the beginning process. For instance, if I may go on, two emails um, that he provided me with, you'll actually see in, in the files that you uploaded, there were two emails from the 7th of March. Um, both those emails, the name at the top says Angelo Gritzi, and when it was printed, those emails were handed to me by him personally, and that's why I have them. Um, and and the interesting part of that is that's, that's on the 7th of March 2018. At 10 in the morning, he emails the auditors of Basasa, Darcy Herman, to make disparaging remarks about the company and its employees. And then 12 hours later, he then email on the same day, he emails the group legal advisor and says, uh, look here, I would like to come in and turn around the business with other past employees that have left the business. So it just shows his modus operandi of of he threatens the company and then often to be the savior. Um, so And which has been consistent, I think it reads quite easily through the documentation that you will see that that's what he consistently does. Um, he threatens and then asks to take over to be the savior. Um, so, yeah, that's the context there. He, he sounds like a, a bit of a mastermind. Um, you, you do mention or you do show in the documentation chess sets uh, that have been made. Does he, yeah. like, does he like chess? Does, does a greasy see himself as, uh, as a puppet master in a way? Yeah, I think he does. I think, I think, um, I think that's how he likes to present himself. Remember, in my view, um, we're dealing with someone that um, has an obsession with, with, with power and being perceived to be in control. I mean, generally, why would a person own five Ferraris? It's not to drive them. It's so that people can see what you own, that people can, you know, that you can be lauded, um, that you can seem like, for lack of a better term, a big deal. Um, so so he, that's what he loves, is I believe, is, is the power, the control. Um, you know, I think he, when he was retrenched from the business, that's what made him potentially go uh, insane, for lack of a better term, is the fact that he was previously um, the man that effectively controlled four and a half to six thousand employees, and now he he that 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 that, that position of control was taken away from him. Um, so so for me, I think that's the context in understanding his character. And from I mean, you say the chess perspective, you know, he would have chess pieces made. I mean, I, d- I don't know if I think I might have shown them to you. He had chess pieces made. Of of uh, of Zondo, he had chess pieces made of President Ramaphosa. He had chess pieces made of President Zuma. He had chess pieces made of Gavin Watson. He had chess pieces made of a number of people, and it's it's, it's almost like some it's some strange game to him, you know, that he controls all these parts. As I mean, as I said to you, I, and I think I would have shown you, I actually have those chess pieces. He, when I was at his house, he actually gave them to me, so we we kept that as a part of evidence as well, which isn't, I guess, in the file because it's a physical chess piece. But um, it's just part of his, his games, you know, he, which, which he would gloat about. Getting to your uncle, uh, the late Gavin Watson, he was with you the night before he died. 
uh, you told us before that, that it was a family celebration and he left in good spirits mm-hmm. and you were looking forward to meeting each other the next morning. I did talk to your father, Valence, about uh, some questions that had, that had arisen about his death, which still appear to be unexplained. But given all the documentation that has gone together, are you now suspecting foul play? Look, just, um, I mean, there's a lot of information that's already out there. Um, so there are elements that have been ruled out and then elements that cannot be ruled out. Um, no one, we haven't been afforded the opportunity to rule out foul play yet. And given certain elements that have happened, such as the movement of his phone subsequent to his death, um, you know, uh, such as what was he doing in that area at that time of the morning, could have, would have most likely have been for a meeting. However, no one has come forward to tell us that we're having a meeting with him. Um, you know, they, they, I can't think offhand now, you know, I've, I write these things down, but there are, there are a number of elements that, that just don't add up and, and we are trying to get the police to investigate further. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, his, uh, a number of elements around, around the fact that his heart wasn't even beating at the time of the impact of the vehicle. Um, now, which would, would, would then suggest that either this is an accident, some health, a health issue before the impact of the vehicle, or is there some other element there? There are just a number of factors that, that just are, are unanswered for us at this stage. And I personally, given those factors, suspect that there was foul play here. Um, given that, I, I would naturally ask who would stand to gain from Gavin's death and who had, uh, who had been a threat to him in the past. The only two questions I can come to uh, in that regard is is Angelo Gritzi himself. And I think the evidence shows that in the file because the reality is that Gavin was to attend uh, the SARS inquiry where his intention was to demonstrate all the lies that Gritzi had told in the past. That was to be the next day um, after Gavin died. And then the following day after Gavin was to appear, Gritzi himself appeared. Um, so there was a massive, I would say, incentive for Agritzi to see that Gavin never made that, uh, that inquiry. And then from the other aspect, if you go and you look at the file, you'll see on the 19th of March, uh, Agritzi says that himself, Andres Fantonda, Leon Fantonda and Franz Forster, as well as other employees that ex-employees from Basasa all wanted to return to the company and they wanted to be a part of what he called a turnaround team to turn, uh, turn around the company. Now, when that offer was rejected, and that's the 19th of March, then we see, and this is from a News 24 article, that, that Mikey Schultz then says that he was then contacted that, that towards the end of March, beginning of April, by Gritzi, and Gritzi was offering to pay him somewhere in the region of 2 million rand to seriously assault Gavin. So we're aware of how he's operated in the past, where when he, when he doesn't get what he wants, he uses underhanded tactics to get what he wants or to enact his um his plans you know so so these are very troubling things for me um that we need to ask i mean it's it was published this last sunday as well in the sunday world that um that agritzi was sending messages to uh, to employees or past employees of the business the very day before gavin died saying please turn on on gavin and side with me um and he was offering to pay them through his brother's business, Semig. Um, and this was the day before Gavin died. Then two days after Gavin died, he was trying to contact directors of the business to say the exact same thing to them as well. And we've got those, those uh, WhatsApp messages on record. 
Um, so these are all very, very troubling things, particularly regarding the timing of when these things occurred. Who's investigating this, apart from you? At the, at the moment, it's, it's the police. Um, you know, I, I, we always investigate privately. You know, I'm trying to figure out as much as I can as well and to be of assistance. But, uh, you know, information hasn't been forthcoming. We're told that, that it's supposed to take 48 hours for us to to get the tracking data from his cell phone, if there's a with I think a 205 subpoena or something like that, within 48 hours the police are supposed to provide you with the tracking data from the phone, which is massively, um, it, it potentially massively influential information. And we're a month in, or over a month in, and still we haven't received any communication. So uh, I'm personally not very uh, impressed with what what we've what information we've received so far. The only credible intel we've received is from the professionals that we have employed ourselves. You said earlier that you've spent much of the last year investigating this. Obviously, you, you must have a day job. Uh, have you just given up on that and, and uh, reallocated your time? No, no. I, I'm basically um, moonlighting on the side, effectively um, using what available time I have um, to assist in this regard. I mean, it's the questions that, that has come up now, I'm not employed by Bosasa. I never have been. I never received anything from it. But the reality is, um, Gritzi has tried to destroy everyone in that business and everyone connected to it, including ourselves, because we're a family of Gavin's. And obviously, you know, if if you are faced with that position, you'll do anything in your power to to resurrect your name or whatever the term I could use. Um, so I'm just using what available time I have. Um, to be of whatever assistance I can be. And where is this going to now? Because it does appear as though the public still certainly judge from the emails and the responses I get on social media, just simply by putting your side of the story, that there's, there are many people who don't believe it, who believe that I've been duped by you and presumably you've been duped by Gavin. Uh, where, where does it all end? Alec, uh, in the court of public opinion, I don't know if it ever ends. So I can't say where this is going. I think, I think, you know, it's, I was talking to someone yesterday. I was saying it's called confirmation bias in finance is generally people go out there looking for information that will support their current view. They don't go out there looking for the truth. So I can't say what some, if someone's pre presented with, with definitive evidence, will anyone change their view on us? I don't think so because that's generally not how humanity works. Um, where it's going, I can't say. All I can do is provide, and it's the exact same thing I said when I spoke to Adrian Besson. I said, look, Adrian, um, we can be cordial with each other, but, but I can't, I'm not, we don't have a relationship built over time, so I can't trust anything you're saying to me, and I don't expect him to, to trust anything I'm saying to him. Um, I don't think the public should believe anything I say necessarily just because I'm saying it. They should go out there, look at the information that's on hand and judge for themselves. They mustn't listen to the opinion of, 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 of any opinion of mine. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm not objective in the sense that I'm perceived to be subjective given that I am Gavin's nephew. However, they shouldn't uh, listen to what I've got to say and believe me because I'm saying it, they should listen to what I've got to say, go have a look at the evidence that is now on hand and judge for themselves. Trust, but verify, verify, verify. For sure. Just uh, to close off with, during the apartheid era, your family uh, got a, a, a quite a quite a rough ride. 
um, especially in the white community. And having, having looked back on that era, we know that there were forces that were uh, providing information, fake news, if you like. Uh, was, were the Watsons subjected to that? Was, was the, maybe the, the white public opinion shaped way back then because of the role that you took in the struggle? Of course. I mean, we have articles. I mean, I, I don't know. I can't remember if my father shared it with you, but we have articles from the 80s which made the exact same accusations about Gavin specifically that, that the, the public is saying now. Nothing has changed. Um, you know, we have to realize that that, that is the nature of media. Um, we've been dealing with this as a family since the 70s. It's nothing new. Um, that's a sad reality. Everyone says, well, well, you know, uh, that someone wants to hear your story. I don't know if that's necessarily true. Um, at the end of the day, people just believe whatever's written in the media, and if the media doesn't want to write what you have to say, you have no control of that. Media is very centrally held in this, in this country. Don't forget, um, and I think we may have even discussed this, that uh, if we look historically um, at media in this country, um, the very same person that formed the National Party, Barry Hatzoch, formed NASPERS, which is the most powerful media organization in the country by far. So the, there are historical elements to understand in the media that we'll never be able to escape. That is the reality of it. Um, so can we control that? No, we can't. Um, so where it goes from here, I don't know. There are many books written about that time, Henny von Fieren's Apartheid Guns and Money being, being one of the, uh, the better ones, which shows that there was a lot of counterintelligence or, or misinformation that was provided at that time. And the, the, when you say that what was written about Gavin Watson uh, during the 80s is the same as being written now, was there a narrative that was being promoted? Is that what you're telling me? Correct, yes. I mean, the very same things that are being said now, some of these things I don't even feel like, um, like verbalizing, but I mean, they were saying in in the 80s, Gavin was having affairs, and they said it um, as if it was uh, as if it was a derogatory statement. They said Gavin was having affairs with black women, and and he was, um, you know, they were stealing, and they were they were uh, they were involved in insurance fraud, and all these things, all these same accusations. He's dealing, if you put the the, the 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 media narrative then next to the media narrative now, it's like the it's like the same person writing the same articles. So nothing has changed. Um, and there's nothing that you can do that, to, to control that. That is just the reality. I mean, don't forget that if, for lack of a better term, uh, at one stage, NASPAS was considered state media. NASPAS uh, was responsible for publishing a lot of what I would call apartheid propaganda. However, when they had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, NASPAS as an organization never came forward to apologize for anything. Uh, I, I believe hundreds of journalists that were employed by them came forward to to, to tell their side of the story, to apologize. But as an organization, still to date, NASPAS has taken no credibility. So that's out of our control. We, you know, what the media chooses to publish on, uh, about us, there's nothing that we can do about that. But what um, you can do is put together yeah, the documentation and say, well, go and read it, go and see the facts. True. So, so you, I mean, look, we're very grateful for that. I mean, we haven't, uh, we don't, do not have a history with each other, you and myself, but I'm grateful that, that at least you've, taking the opportunity just to upload um, what documentation we have and allow others to judge for themselves. And you have more documentation. There is more documentation and there's more that we are trying to gather. You know, this is an ongoing investigation. 
you know, as we are able to come across more information, you know, we will most likely release that. But this is a process that we're going through. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. We had a, uh, as you could hear, about a half hour conversation uh, looking at the documentation, which is on BizNews. Uh, we've called it the Basasa files. There is a lot to go through. There are highlights there. There is um, a timeline which I've always found to be the most accurate way to get to the truth. And Jared Watson, who's a chartered accountant, as he said, spent much of the past year, much of this year, putting that all together so that we can actually look at it with a less jaundiced eye. And never forget that prejudices and perceptions are often shaped by influences of which we have no control. They just come over us. and We then get aligned to some kind of a belief, and that belief system gets deeply ingrained in us. As human beings, surely part of our growth is to be able to look at things from a balanced perspective and to make up our own minds when you look at both sides of the story. Well, this has been the rational perspective, as you are hopefully very well aware now. We do have rebroadcasts of this program uh, on the Biz News Radio channel at 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock on the Wednesday evening, and then once again at 7 a.m. on Thursday morning. Until the next time, this is Alec Hogg saying, cheerio.